First Peter chapter four. We begin at verse one and we read through into chapter five and verse eleven. Peter begins to apply further his teaching of the earlier chapters. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but living, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. <clears throat> the end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled, so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. To the elders among you, <clears throat> I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings 
and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, we reach Psalm 16 in our singing through the book of the Psalms in the morning. <clears throat> Psalm 16, and we're going to sing part of this uh, psalm at this stage, and part of it at the close of our service. So, uh, Psalm 16, we will sing actually 1 to 5 at this stage, if that doesn't, does that create a problem for tune? Yes. Right, okay, we'll sing 1 to 6 then. And we can sing 6 to 10 later. Um, Nothing wrong with singing a verse twice. So, um, Psalm 16, we're singing at this stage 1 to 6. And this is a psalm about a man who is entirely satisfied with his God. He is God-satisfied. It's a psalm that again has its context in the Old Testament, uh, in uh, the life of David. David, of course, was described as a man after God's own heart. Uh, And uh, this psalm uh, speaks of his uh, trust in the Lord. Um, William Scroggie, who has done a commentary in the Psalms, um, takes the theme of looking, looking, From this psalm, he says, verse 1 and 2 in the metrical version, as it is in our page, is looking above. The psalmist is looking above. You are my Lord. Apart from you, no good do I possess. A text that I have preached on before, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse uh, 7. 
Uh, I preach in this text again uh, without apology uh, from the point of view that um, anxiety and being fearful, uh, being concerned about the future uh, and about things that are happening in our lives is something that is very frequently with the Lord's people. It is striking that uh, one of the commands in Scripture that is most frequently given is the command, fear not or do not be afraid. I read somewhere once, um, I haven't checked it out, but that it's um, given 366 times. Uh, so you have one for every day of the year and then one also for the leap year. And that ties in with the whole theme of anxiety. Peter, writing here to believers, says to them, Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares uh, for you. And of course, this text in the day in which Peter wrote it, had its own particular relevance and application to the believers who read it. Uh, we believe that Peter was writing in the mid-60s. Uh, he was writing at a time when opposition to the gospel and the church was mounting. It was beginning to express itself in a more organized and openly hostile fashion. You will remember that in the very early days of the church in the book of Acts, that hostility and opposition had come from the Jewish church that didn't want to acknowledge the Christ. Well, um, the opposition from the Jewish church has not subsided completely. Paul is experiencing that because he is the apostle to the Gentiles. But um, Peter is the apostle, apostle principally to the Jews. Uh, who have become believers. Uh, and so uh, they are also experiencing hostility. And their hostility is coming um, now more and more from the world. More and more from the world around them. The Roman Empire uh, is beginning to oppose the gospel. There is now a Roman Emperor... And he thinks he is Lord. He is God. And Nero uh, is um, uh, on the uh, is, uh, emperor by this stage. Uh, and um, so Christians are being um, confronted with the choice. Do I say Caesar is Lord? Or do I say Jesus is Lord? And that's a very real challenge that is coming in in the 21st century again. Our covenanting forefathers in the 1600s lived and died for the truth. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is King of the individual life. He's King in His church. And the nation must not interfere. Government must not interfere in the life of the church. And indeed the government of the nation has a duty to legislate for Christian morality. 
And all of those things are being challenged today. And there is increasingly, as we know, the government policy which says all faiths are the same. And all faiths should be equally recognised and treated as the same. Well, that is in contradiction to the truth that Jesus is Lord. And then, of course, uh, we are uh, aware of how government wants to tell the church what she's to believe uh, about a whole range of things, uh, uh, not just about other religions, but also about morals uh, and about marriage and such matters. And, uh, of course, then, our nation today is not legislating for Christian morals. It is legislating today for an amoral society where people can do whatever they want. So, these sort of circumstances, they create anxiety, fear um, of how we are to cope and of what will happen. And then, of course, we have the reality that people have their own personal challenges, their own personal struggles, their own personal fears. So let's think then, first of all, this morning about anxiety acknowledged. Anxiety acknowledged. Because that's the first thing that Peter does here in this text. He acknowledges the presence of, or the reality of anxiety. Look at what he says. All your anxiety. All your anxiety. The apostle understands human nature. He knows that his readers um, are faced with uh, challenges. They're faced with the prospect of trial and hardship. And they will be filled with anxiety. Matthew Henry says they will be filled with an abundance of care and fear. That's what anxiety in many respects is. It's filled with an abundance of care and fear. What will happen to us? What will happen to our families? What will happen to our church if Caesar continues to go in the direction in which he is going. Will we survive persecution? Will we lose our jobs as slaves? Will we have to flee for our lives? Will our families be broken up? Will our churches be disbanded? And there are believers this morning in parts of the world where these things are precisely happening. The church, for example, in Iraq, uh, has been decimated uh, by um, the new regime uh, in a rather strange way. Um, uh, Saddam Hussein didn't bother the Church of Christ in Iraq. But this new um, development with Islamic State and Islamic fundamentalism, it is decimating the Church in Iraq. And that's happening in other parts of the Middle East as well. And so um, um, this text speaks into that situation, all your anxiety. But then you 
uh, and I will have our own personal anxieties. When life becomes hard for you uh, and me due to some personal struggle, due to some family issue, or perhaps as a result of some church situation, we tend to become full of care and fear, uh, even fretful. Uh, Many of us have the ability to fear the worst in situations and to get ourselves worked up into a lather of care, into a state of things, about things, so that our ability to sleep is affected, our ability to work is affected, and our ability generally to function suffers. We allow our minds to work overtime, and we contemplate situations that may never happen. What if I lose my job? What if I'm diagnosed with cancer? What if my children deny the faith? What if persecution for the gospel becomes even more forthright in our nation? Peter writes, all your anxiety, all your care and fear. The noun he uses occurs six times in the New Testament. Here, obviously, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, and most significantly four times by Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. And this word carries with the idea of excessive concern. Excessive concern. The kind of concern that's like a a big burden, a big bag of blocks on your back. Um, We were filling bags yesterday with rubble uh, down on North Road where we hammered up a bit of the floor. uh, And... um, Mervyn and and Jack were concerned about how we would get these bags into the skip uh, because you've got to lift them up. And you see, it's the idea, that's the picture of something that weighs you down, that's beyond you, that's going to be impossible for you to bear, holds you back, paralyzes you, and hinders a personal living. Jesus warned continually about the cares of this world. He warned about the cares of life. That keep people from becoming disciples. Talks about that in the parable of the sower. Uh, People filled with all kinds of cares. The third kind of ground. Uh, And so the gospel is sown. And it comes to no effect. Because here's somebody. And their whole uh, thrust of their lives is caught up in the material things. Now there's a verb connected with this noun. It occurs 18 times in the New Testament. And interestingly six of those are in the Sermon on the Mount. That first sermon that Jesus taught like Moses taught in the Old Testament on Sinai. After um, he gathers his disciples to himself and makes them his, his apostles. He knows they're going to face difficulties. And there's going to be times of need. And he says to them six times in that parable, uh, or sorry, in that sermon, do not be afraid. Now, of course, Scripture is not suggesting that we're careless or that we're idle in regard to our needs. It doesn't mean that tomorrow you go and you fold your arms and you put your feet up 
on the coffee table and you switch them on the television and you say, I don't need to go to work. I don't need to get any food in from the shops. I don't need to, um, to be concerned about anything. <clears throat> um, God has told me to just cast all my anxiety upon him. That would be utterly reckless. There is a due responsibility and concern that we're to have with our own affairs. We're to provide, we're to work, we're to earn our daily bread. We're to keep a God-centered perspective on our lives by working. But you see, the problem with anxiety is it robs us with a God-centered perspective on life. And what it does is it magnifies this issue here to the point that it dominates the whole of our vision. And we can't see anything else but it. And we can't hear anything else. And we can't do anything else but think about it. And you see, when that's the case, then that is all our anxiety. So, Peter acknowledges the, this, um, the presence of anxiety, the reality of anxiety. And let's ask ourselves this morning, <clears throat> um, is this a text that the Lord is speaking into your life? Or my life, because we have got some matter out of perspective. And it's a huge issue when with the Lord it becomes a small issue. <clears throat> Let's notice then, secondly, anxiety answered. What is the answer to anxiety? Well, Peter tells us here. Um, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him. Literally, Peter writes here, all your care or all your care and fear having cast upon him. Having cast upon him. It's not a command. It's something that we are, uh, we have done. Here's what we're to do with care that weighs us down. With anxiety that paralyzes us and holds us back from living now. We are to cast it upon him. And the hymn of verse 7 is not a reference to Christ at this point. Although there's much of Christ as we saw in the reading of this chapter. It is a reference to God. Back in verse 5 and verse 6. Young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud. Um, then verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand. And you see what Peter writes here in verses 5 and 6 uh, about casting our care upon God um, gives us confidence to cast our care upon God. Why should we cast our care on God? The skeptic would ask, what difference would it make? It's simply in the mind. The doubting Christian may say, well, I have done that already. I've cast this care upon God day after day. And he hasn't done 
anything to relieve my plight. Sometimes the problem is that we cast our care upon God and then we take it back upon ourselves instead of leaving it with him. Um, And so the Christian might say, God is insensitive to my need. God is deaf to my cry. I've cast it upon him and he hasn't answered. Well, verses 5 and 6 answer such quibbles that we may have with God. Verse 5 reminds us that we are to submit ourselves to God. We're not to think we know better. Uh, We are to be humble before him. Uh, Knowing uh, that he is wise, he is loving, he gives grace to those who trust in him. And so um, uh, the Lord then uh, is, the Lord God is the answer to anxiety. As Nero and the powers that be in Rome organize themselves in arrogant opposition to Christ's church that is now blossoming across the Roman Empire. Believers in local churches who are bearing the brunt of that hostility are to cast their care upon him, their fear and their care, in the sure knowledge that God hears them. That God is with the humble and that God opposes the proud. And they needed any um, encouragement to see how God um, opposes the proud. All they had to do was go to the book of Daniel and see how God opposed Nebuchadnezzar. All they had to do was go into the book of Esther and see how God opposed the wicked Haman. He was going to wipe out every one of God's people across not just that nation, but across the nations of the earth. You see, the answer to our anxiety then is to cast ourselves humbly upon the God who humbles the proud. The God who intervenes at the right time. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. And what does it say? At the break of day, he helps her. At the very precise moment. He's not a moment too early. He's not a second too late. So then verse 6. You see, believers are encouraged as they humble themselves under the hand of God. Not only will he humble the proud, but God is a mighty hand. He's a mighty hand, an almighty hand that is able to lift his people up at the right time, the time in his purpose. He's able to provide He's able to preserve. You see, this is our comfort. And this is the answer to our anxiety. And we see this pattern fulfilled in the life of our Savior. Think about him on the cross. What did he do? He humbled himself. Indeed, Paul presents um, his whole earthly um, 
experience as one of humbling himself. Philippians chapter 3. He humbled himself becoming a man and under the law and then taking the form of a servant. And the lowest point of that humbling of himself, it's coming down in a, in a, a, a parabola where is when he is on the cross. But then you see Philippians 3, God exalts him to an even higher position than he had before. Because now he is the God-man who holds all authority in heaven and on earth to save his people from the nations of the earth. And so there's this pattern in the life of Christ. And you see it's the pattern in your life and my life. Jesus said the servant is not greater than his master. The servant is not greater than his master. And so there are things that will happen in our lives that will humble us and will bring us right down to the very end of our resources where we are at the point of crying out with Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's the very moment the darkness begins to lift. Because in God's purpose, that trial is finished. And so he exalts us by his mighty hand. So the answer to your fear and anxiety and your care is not to lie awake at night. It's not to keep turning over all the possibilities. It's not to keep talking about it every minute of every hour of every day. It's to cast it upon God in Christ and to humble yourself saying Lord you know what's best and you've your time and you've your purpose in this and you will bring me through this and you will bless me in the midst of this you will work all things together for good to me as I love you and live as the called According to your purpose. Are we handling anxiety in that way? Or are we casting our care upon him. And then we're taking it back upon ourselves. And our relief is only light and momentary. Because we don't leave our cares with him. Because we don't trust him. To, ex to bring us through it with his mighty hand. Because we don't trust him to deal with whoever it is or whatever it is. is causing us the source of the trouble. And that he can and, and will in his time remove that. Let us cast our cares upon him. And let us having cast our care upon him. Trust his mighty hand in our lives and upon our lives and over our lives. But then let's notice thirdly this morning, anxiety, avoid it or 
Anxiety, needless. We're looking now at the, the needlessness of anxiety from another angle. Um, and just developing a bit more the, the theme of the cross. To be weighed down with undue care, with fretful anxiety, is utterly needless. It's needless. It's pointless. Because actually what it does is it keeps you from getting on with the things you ought to be doing. Isn't that right? When you're anxious about something and you're filled with fear about something, you're paralyzed. You're like the rabbit caught in the lights, the headlights of the car. It just freezes. Can't move. And you see, that is... Um, a bad place that's the wrong place for us to be so it cannot be justified why not you may ask does not the extremity of the situation justify it does not the peculiarity of my circumstances warrant it no nothing can justify a debilitating anxiety or let's put it like this an anxiety that saps us of our strength and energy to get on with life today for Christ why not well our text says in order to drive the point home because he cares for you we've illustrated that already in verses 5 and 6 but now in order to put it beyond all doubt uh, Peter says because he cares for you or literally it reads because with him with him with God there is care for you the God who is over this universe the God who has set it in motion is a God who cares Jesus said he cares for the birds of the air the grass of the field how much more valuable are you than they Jesus said, the little sparrows don't fall to the ground without God knowing it. Why? Because he's a God who cares for the birds of the air. If you and I could only grasp it, God cares for you more than you care or can care for yourself. God cares for you far, far more than you can care for yourself. What basis can we say that? Well, we can say that because of the very nature and manner of our salvation. When did God care about your salvation? Well, when you and I couldn't, and when you and I didn't, when you and I couldn't, and when you and I didn't, 
his care for your salvation is traced back to eternity. Before the world was made, when he chose you sovereignly and freely to be his child, when he gave you to his son, when he arranged with his son what he wanted his son to do, to become a man, to die a painful, shameful, atoning death for sin, for the sin of his people, so that you would be justified as if you had never sinned, treated as if you had never sinned, so that you would be adopted, taken out of the family of the devil and put into the family of God, so that you would be saved, that you would be sanctified, made holy, so that you one day would be glorified, made perfect, and reigning with Christ. That's when God cared for you. In eternity. Before he'd made a single. Part of this universe. Or a single person. Before a single sin. Had been committed. And then God cared for you in time. Before you were born. When 2,000 years ago he sent Christ to live for you and to die and to rise again for your salvation. And God cared for you in your life from whatever day you were born until this point. He cared for you when you were incapable of having a single thought about him. Have you ever looked back at your life and if there was a period and I know not everybody has this because some children growing up in Christian homes may not know a time when they did not believe in Christ but for others there's a time when we can look back and we can say I know definitely then I was not a Christian. Can you look back and say I look back now and I can see the hand of God upon my life when I wasn't a Christian. He put me in that place, in that school with that teacher, or in that job, and beside a Christian, and in a hundred ways. He put his hand in my life and he kept me alive at a time when I was close, with, I was within inches of death in an accident. Did you care then about salvation? No, you didn't. But God did. Cared about your salvation. And so this is a remarkable statement because he cares for you. He has cared for you from eternity. He cared for you in the sending of a son. He has cared for you in the, from the moment you were conceived in the womb of your mother. And he's cared for you, bringing you into salvation in himself. And he will care for you right through to the end. And so what is our greatest problem then when it comes to anxiety? How is it to be avoided? It is to be avoided by thinking correctly. 
by thinking correctly about God. About God. Not allowing the lies of the devil to say God doesn't care for you. That's what he did back in Eden with Adam and Eve. God doesn't really care for you. If he had cared for you, he'd allowed you to have this tree as well. And isn't that what the devil often does with us? If God really cared for you, he would have allowed you to have such and such. Be married or have children or whatever. Whatever is it. And he holds it out there and he says, God's not a caring God because he's put this forbidden tree in your life. And we need to answer the devil and say God the Lord God has he not said he cares for you we answer the lies of the devil as Jesus did in the wilderness where everything shouted there's no one cares for you but Jesus answered the devil with the word of God And so the way for us to avoid anxiety is to learn to think about ourselves as God thinks towards us. He cares for you. What is happening to you? What is happening around you? And let us learn that as a care is eternal, it's constant, it's unchanging, And it's flawless. It's perfect. We don't see that now maybe. But it is the case. Because he causes the lines to fall for us. In beautiful places. So. Handling. Anxiety. Yes we need to acknowledge anxiety. It takes a grip on our lives. The answer to anxiety is to cast all our anxiety upon him when that moment when it's, it's getting its stranglehold around our lives like a vice grip and it's tightening more and more. But even better still is that we avoid anxiety, undue care and fear in the first place by remembering he cares for Do you believe it? Will you live it? Amen. Let's pray.